0: Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura.
1: Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Law Deans Jackie Gardina and Mitch Winnick.
2: If you reduce violent crime by 3% a year, in 10 years you drop it by 30%, how many lives have you changed? And that's the approach that we have to take, a long-term approach, and not this microwave and pan the fan because we didn't get in this mess overnight.
1: That's our guest, Dr. Thaddeus Johnson, a senior fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice.
3: Welcome back to Sidebar. My name's Jackie Gardina I'm the Dean of the Colleges of Law in Santa Barbara and Ventura, California, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick.
0: Hi, Jackie. Delighted to be here again on another exciting episode of Sidebar. My name is Mitch Winnick, and I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law. We also have programs in San Luis Obispo, Bakersfield, and Santa Rosa. Jackie, the past several years have brought to the forefront issues of urban violence and policing behavior that has resulted in tragic high-profile deaths at the hands of local police. The public outcry has been for police reform. There can be no question about the tragic outcomes. We've seen them all too frequently on the national news. However, what we're not seeing and hearing our discussions about the underlying issues that may be part of the root cause of these conflicts between individual rights and policing policy and what interventions are available and successful.
3: And our guest today is going to help us have a conversation about these very issues, Mitch. Dr. Thaddeus Johnson is a former law enforcement official in Memphis, Tennessee, who currently serves as an assistant professor of criminal justice and criminology at the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University, and is also a senior fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice. He has researched and written on some of the most challenging issues related to urban violence, police policies, and racially disparate justice outcomes. As we have learned from his research and publications, all of these issues are interconnected, but frequently misunderstood and too rarely discussed outside of socially and politically charged soundbites that lack fact-based context.
0: Jackie and I believe that the work that THAT is doing is some of the most important analysis and discussion necessary to help us understand how to break the circle of violence, incarceration, and recidivism that many of our urban areas are experiencing. As challenging as these topics can be, Thad also brings us a message of hope in describing public policies, police training and education, and modifications in the justice system that illustrate that progress is possible. Thad, welcome to
2: Sidebar. Thank you all so much for having me. I feel like I'm amongst family already.
3: Thad, I'm, I'm actually fascinated by your research. I think it's absolutely fantastic work. But I do want to start with a question that I think is a challenge to talk about, but so important in the context of your work, which is this concept of systemic racism, which has become a politically charged concept. But because it plays such an important role in what we're about to talk about, I'd like to kind of help us and our listeners start with a definition of systemic racism, and maybe some examples about how it shows up, so that people understand what it is, how it shows up, and that will inform the discussion that we have going
2: forward. That's a, a great point to start at. And let me first say is that I arrived to this point with our research seeking to disprove inequities, right? Seeking, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a scientist, you're a trained skeptic of sorts. But in all of the work, what we found is no matter what the reforms were, no matter what the trends were, race mattered. Race really mattered. And unfortunately, you know, as great as our nation is, right, we've had an ugly history of Jim Crow laws, of slavery, of uh, disproportionalities within systemic inequities. And systemic inequities have unfortunately disproportionately impacted black and brown communities disproportionately. We're not the only ones, right? And so what has happened is you have had generations upon generations where black people have disproportionately less wealth. Even though we're making strides when it comes to educational attainment, there still is a gap when it comes to educational attainment. We have poor access to healthcare. And even if you go into many communities that are predominantly uh, black and brown, you'll see there's more liquor stores and pawn shops than there are libraries and green spaces. And so these are the symptoms of systemic inequities. Uh, And and, and right now, you know, our country, we're paying, we're still paying for the sins of our past, despite all the progressive work and the many great people, including lawmakers and and boots on the ground, who are actually doing the work to make our lives and our society much better.
0: Thad, you argue tough on crime and mass incarceration isn't the answer in your research and your writing. You appear to be swimming against the tide on much of the conversation in this area. Crime waves are really potent political talking points. So how does this
2: affect the work you're doing? So I've been fortunate enough to have received great reception, even if they are tense in the beginning, because I base my work off of data. I base my work off of evidence. And yeah, look, I'm a black guy with dreads, a former cop from South Memphis. So I have some experiential aspects I can kind of bring it to life, right? And I think, you know, because of what I look like, but also I've been a a ranking police officer. I think what has happened is I'm able to navigate various different spaces. One thing that I have talked about uh, in particular is my definition of justice is accountability. On the advocacy leaning, it's not about accountability. That's not how life works. But justice is also accountability. And you add a little bit of sprinkle of mercy, the sprinkle of grace inside of there. That's the kind of approach that I've taken. And I think, you know, when you start to break these things down and really talk about it, and people saying you're bringing a holistic approach and that you're not leaning one way or the other, that you're following the data. And that when we present these data, the main thing that people forget to do is that data points are people. My wife and I talk about this all the time. And so you have to make sure that you humanize the data. So when people look at it, it's not just, oh, the psychological barrier between you and the data. And I think, you know, that has been a very successful approach because I I don't miss words. I don't miss the fact that if someone commits crime, they have to be held accountable. But we cannot rest our way out.
0: We are talking to Dr. Thaddeus Johnson about research on racial disparities and their systemic roots. After a brief break to hear from our sponsors, we'll dive into what his research shows. Are you getting ready to start your bar prep
4: journey? Kaplan is the only major bar review offering live instruction with both live and on-demand classes. With Kaplan's bar prep, you get the ideal amount of structure and guidance, no matter how you choose to prep. Join a real-time or on-demand class, stay on track with personalized study plans, and learn from expert attorneys. Kaplan helps thousands of professionals pass the bar each year. Start your journey today. Find your bar review at captest.com slash bar.
1: Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law.
3: I want to dive a little bit deeper into the data because I think it's so important because we've been throwing out this idea of racial disparities, but we haven't Articulated what those disparities are. So, if you could talk a little bit about what your research has shown and why you believe that it is evidence of that systemic racism that we started the conversation with.
2: Absolutely. And so, I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is that our justice system, at least by the evidence and the data and in many outcomes, is the fairest that it's been in a long time. So, for instance. You're talking about the disparities when it comes to drug arrests. That's where the biggest drop in imprisonment that we've seen. It dropped from like 15 to 1 to just under 4 to 1, about 3.6 to 1. The one thing that we found that perhaps uh, white people are more likely in the outcome is when it comes to parole and probation revocation, is the fact that in 2000, black people were much more likely than white people to have their parole and pr- probation revoked. But by the time 2019 came, it flipped. And white people are slightly more likely in doing so. But it's still within that fair range that we talk about, right? Because it's not fair for white people to be mistreated as well. I think, you know, we often miss that point and that's important to make. We notice that disparities are decreasing nationally in all those places, even though a gap remains. It's also intriguing to know that this is why you have to really dig into the data. Because what we found was that a big reason for the disparity changes that we saw is the Mathematics. The black adult population grew at about 33 percent over this time, whereas the white adult population only grew 7 percent. And so our calculation showed that 50 percent of the change in disparity that we saw was due to population changes, nothing to do with the justice system. And so these are things that we have to really understand and explore. And so we really dug deep into these aspects up to the point where we found that there is no evidence when it comes to drugs and property crime that black people offend more. But that was not the case when it came to violent offending and violent victimization and these communities are suffering. And if we don't have this conversation, these communities will continue to suffer. And so this is why it's important to speak, let's say, truth to power, to speak to the facts and speak to the evidence. And even if things are ugly, that's a good thing because now you can start making progress.
0: Thad, you've also written on the impact that charging policies have on conviction and incarceration particularly in the areas of discretion by the local district attorney's offices. Discretion to charge or dismiss, discretion on charging misdemeanor or felony offenses, discretion on plea bargaining, and finally, upon finding of guilt, discretion on probation versus jail and recommendations for sentencing, and on and on. Is there a temptation to be too focused on police policies while overlooking questions about the district attorney charging and sentencing policies?
2: First of all, let's talk about the federal government, the George Floyd Act, because they can't even come together and, and honor this man who was killed on national TV in front of us all. So but when it didn't happen, it's not earth shattering for me because it's local and state actors that are doing the work. Now, you're right. We tend to talk about and, and we tend to be restricted to law changes and these things and, and these big reforms. <laughs> reform is piecemeal reform is at the local or state level. And what we're finding is that oftentimes we leave the prosecutors out of this conversation. and It's funny, I talk to my students all the time. You know, I ask them, who wants to be police officers? Nobody raised their hand. Who wants to be an attorney? Everybody wants to be a defense attorney. Well, I tell them, that's great and I understand your heart, but we need justice-minded prosecutors in there who can understand systemic inequities, how they impact people, but also the impacts of court decisions on people. So mind you, they are bound by law and they just can't act uh, all willy-nilly for lack of better terms. But it seems like The courts are doing something. And even in places like Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, we're seeing that they're using diversion. We're seeing that they're focusing on serious violent offenses, and they're also focusing on firearms. And you also see that in our prison systems, our state prisons. Right now, two-thirds of both black people and white people in prison are there for violent crimes. And they're also serving longer periods than they have before over the past two decades. So we're locking people up, people for violence, and we're locking people up longer for these violent offenses but we're still having these issues. And this is why I think the prosecutors are so important because it's a delicate balancing act of, of equity, but also public safety. And just because you know that one group has been disproportionately impacted, you can't go beyond the law and do things unconstitutional to try to rectify that. And I think what attorneys and particularly DAs have been doing in courts have been doing, have been doing a great balancing act of understanding these things, uh, understanding mitigating factors, understanding that everybody that's on the same playing field. You now I go back to Dr. King and I will shut up when he said, it's one thing to tell a person to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, but it's cruel to a person who has no bootstrap to tell them to do so. And I think that we're seeing that across our court systems.
1: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we return, we'll talk with our guest, Dr. Thaddeus Johnson, about what community efforts are working to reduce disparity and improve public safety.
3: The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your
2: own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your
1: future at CollegesOfLaw.edu.
4: Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? Law school prepares students to serve clients with a breadth of specialized knowledge within the legal realm. Law practice affords us the wisdom only experience can teach. But what about the technical skills that bring it all together? Who's addressing that need? The Legal Technology Assessment (LTA) by ProCertus is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. The LTA pairs competence-based assessments with synchronous active learning to provide effective, tailored training. ProCertus is reshaping online learning with a market-unique platform and approach to the upskilling and validation of skill sets for all legal professionals. Come check us out at www.procertus.com.
3: Mitch and I really do try to not just talk about what's wrong with the system, but what is going well or what has worked. And you've just identified, A, it's a local problem, it's a community problem. B, there's lots of actors involved. You've got the police, you've got the prosecutors, you've got the public defenders, you've got the court systems, and obviously you've got community activists and others who are invested in the reform occurring. Can you give us some insights into communities, and you wrote about the Oakland work, some communities that have been successful in coming together and seeing some real reduction in some of the violence and crime and incarceration?
2: Thank you for raising that point, because it goes back to with what's the biggest issue that we have at CJ we're facing? is equity and effectiveness in combating community violence. Also, it goes to show, again, we can't lock our way up out of this, this mess and we cannot arrest our way out of it. And, and, and what we find is is that we have to think about public safety and police at the front end, uh, because it has back-end implications. But how do you prevent that crime at the community level? We've used things like focus deterrence. It's not police versus community, or police are doing something, community is doing something. Police and community are one. And so I almost hate using the term police reform, because it seems that it kind of pushes us and makes us adversarial when it's really... Community reform. Talk about Dallas real quick. It's the police and how they use the hotspots technology. So, most of the time you use hotspots technology, you're going to lock people up. Dallas, they partnered with service providers. They went in and held the people accountable that would need to be held accountable, but they loved on this community through services and meeting them where they need to be met and, meet, and trying to meet their needs and giving them access to those resources. Let me tell you what happened when the rest of the country was dealing with these crime wave issues during the pandemic, not Dallas, because they started these things like in 2016, when they really realized that we got to make a change in the things that we're doing. Oakland had 10 years of success. First of all, you got to have community trust, not only as service providers, but the service providers and the community has to have trust in the police. OFAN has problems with corruption, trust, protests, change of leadership, both at the police level, but also at the uh, political level. And this is the thing, you have to have the political will to make these things happen. In Cincinnati, we saw great impacts on police working together with the community, where officers were safer, the citizens were safer, disparities went down, but the defund the, the police move and all these things came along and leadership change and the political will left. It goes to show when people think community trust in the police is just a abstract term and it's kumbaya, no. Because it has life or death implications and it can also determine the success of many of these programs. Because again, these programs are not successful alone and police are not successful, successful alone. They have to work and coordinate and collaborate together. And if the trust is missing on one of those ends, like I sus- suspect we saw in Oakland, uh, you will see that fall off as well.
3: Just a clarifying question about what you just talked about, because I want to make sure people understand. When you're saying service providers and partnering with service providers, what are you talking about in relation to that?
2: Oh, so prime example, like in Dallas, Greg, I'm talking about Dallas again, the Dallas Stars program. What they did was they partnered plainclothes police officers with social workers, with substance abuse uh, coordinators, mental health specialists, housing specialists. This is also what they did with the hotspots policing approach. If there were, they, they brought in HUD, HUD representatives, housing authority. Also, they cleaned up things environmentally. So it also means bringing in the landscaping crews. People take for granted that creating a community that people can be proud of, that goes a long way in investment and in the safety. And so these are some things that we saw uh, in Dallas that we've seen, like I said, in these other programs we saw in Denver. So uh, I, I'm naming all these places because, you know, I want people to know that People are working hard. It may not make the news. It may not be sexy. It may not be these, these big changes. But think about it. If you reduce violent crime by 3% a year, in 10 years you drop it by 30%, how many lives have you changed? And that's the approach that you have to take, a long-term approach, and not this microwave and pan in the fan because we didn't get in this mess overnight.
0: Dad, let me Circle back a little to police training and this idea of awareness of the issues. You have written about research that shows the idea that it is merely white police officers who don't understand how to police black communities. If I remember correctly or read it correctly, your research showed that it wasn't just that. It was police officers, regardless of race and ethnicity, who... If they were provided with different awareness and different training, change the numbers. That it wasn't fundamentally the race of the police officer, it was what you're talking about engagement and understanding of the community culture. Is that a fair take on what
2: you were writing? It's a very fair take. In in a lot of my research, I have a ton of control measures. I mean, I control for. A bunch of factors, socioeconomic, demographic factors, that's within the department and the community, regionally, outside of what we're interested in. For instance, I'm looking at police education. But we have to try to make our models, statistical models, as, as real as we, as we can, right? And what I'm finding is in all those models, nothing came up about officer race agenda. Either it was a community level aspect or it was that policy mechanism that I was actually looking at, whether it's facial recognition technology or whether police education. Uh, What we're seeing across the nation when it comes to training is the escalation training really helps. Now, I'm going to get in trouble, but, you know, we talk about implicit bias training. Right. And everybody was a magic bullet. I call BS. Right. Because people have a lifetime of implicit biases and implicit biases against black people and other groups are not just interracial. Black people have implicit biases because on their own black people. I tell, I tell my students, if I saw Sophia, the rest of the golden girls walking down the street in in, in Atlanta at two in the morning, or I saw the rap group Migos walking down the street at two in the morning. If I decide to cross the street, it's not going to be because of the golden girls. And so I I think we have to be realistic about these things. And so when it comes to race and race matters, what really matters is the race of the citizens that's being served of our clients, and not the officer, right? Because I could talk about being black and blue and how like, you know, you have to enforce the law, but you get called things like stepping, and fetching and Uncle Tom amongst your own people. I can talk about that. But really what we're seeing is it's about the training. When I was a police officer, I could run, fight, jump. I can do all those things, but I didn't receive a lick of training on how to de-escalate. You know how I de-es- de-escalated? I take control of the scene and exert my authority and my power. That's how I was trained. And that's starting to change a little bit. And so regardless of the race of the officer, it's about how people are being treated. Even when you look at national data and police and traffic stops. Yeah, you see black people may tend to be less uh, satisfied or think it's less fair of these stops, but this is what changed it. When they were treated like human beings, fairly explain what was going on, you don't see racial differences in those level of satisfaction, right? And so it's more about civility, it's more about training. And the last thing I'll say is that it also goes into how we reward our police officers. If we reward our police officers to chase arrests, to chase traffic stops, to write tickets for many things that have no public safety value, then it's not the officers or even the departments. It's the state, the federal government. These local governments, how they evaluate police departments that end up making our citizens commodities for promotion, commodities for expenditures and budget, and not necessarily co-producers to public safety.
0: We are going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to discuss how the for-profit prison system and the 13th Amendment may interfere with efforts to reduce incarceration. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An honorable profession profiles the rising stars in American politics, from mayors to attorney generals, An Honorable Profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found.
3: Everything that your research shows and the community work that you've described. It's like, who wouldn't be behind reducing crime by 3% every year? Who wouldn't be behind making public safety a priority and neighborhoods safe? And why is reform at the community level, and I really love that you talk about it as community reform, um, why is that so difficult? And I've been thinking about who's who are the obstacles to some of this and one of the obstacles that comes up is the for-profit prison system and some businesses have built their entire financial model on incarceration and the two largest private prisons geo group and core civic combined had a gross income of over 4 billion dollars in 2022 they have the incentive and the money to lobby for and push this kind of tough on crime approach to policing, sentencing, parole decisions, etc. What's the counter to that?
2: That's really difficult because once you throw that into there, also know that it's politicization and that we have a lot of politicians who partner with these same groups. You have and so this is what I tell people when you have human beings involved. <laughs> to say to air er as human, right? And so when you have them involved, there's always going to be these issues of biases, of greed, having skin in the game, right? And so divided loyalties, loyalties that are not necessarily for public safety, holding on to old regimes of thinking. And let's just be frank. Our nation has a history, unfortunately, of making money off the backs of black, brown people and poor people in our nation. And so this is something that has, is part of our, unfortunately, our, our fabric in our society, right? And so this is just only another prime example of showing how we have profited off of justice related matters. And, and it's so scary because you really described it for what it is it's an industry. And that goes to many reforms that we use to reform other industries can't be used in the justice system. But you're absolutely right. And there's not a whole lot of data, right? Because of privatizers. What about the standards? I'm not sure if I really answered the question, but I totally to didn't say an amen.
3: Just to bring up another thing, because I think there's a hidden financial incentive that we don't think about. I don't know that many Americans really have looked at the 13th Amendment carefully. It prohibited slavery, except for incarcerated individuals. And there's a lot of free or very low paying positions that are gotten through the prison system. In California, it's often talked about how when the forest fires come, it's incarcerated individuals that are on the front lines at no or little cost to the government. So I don't think it's just about the private prison in terms of the money they make, but how is the community profiting off of the individuals incarcerated through basically labor that is free because of their incarcerated state and is not unconstitutional because the 13th Amendment carved that exception into the Constitution. And we don't talk about that enough when we're talking about incarcerated individuals in the United States.
2: Jackie, I try to stay away from that. (laughs) But I'm glad you brought that up. And I think, you know, it goes to the point is that we don't see individuals who are incarcerated in our nation as, as, as worthy of humanity. We see them less than. And that's the really, I don't have a scientific answer for that, but I do have a, a human answer for that. And that's the absolute truth. Even you talked about beyond the forest fire, even like they're doing these jobs inside these prisons, right? Whether it's working, this cooking, you know, whether it's in the library and these things, they're making, I mean, literally pennies on the dollar. And then you wonder why there's such corruption, why there's violence sometimes behind our prison wall, why when people come out, wouldn't it be great if people can work these jobs and come out with a little bit of a nest egg, right? So they can pay rent, so they can go to the dentist right? So they can go buy a bottle of aspirin, right? I think, you know, we oftentimes our thinking is short. You don't think about the long-term effects. Oftentimes things can be lawful, but they're still awful. And that's one of those things. Absolutely.
0: Thad, we know that you tend to have a hopeful view of things, even though these are challenging issues and it's it's sometimes frustrating to see how little progress seems to be made. But Even after wading through what are these troubling, discouraging, and incredibly challenging issues, we know you have hope for the future. What do you see as our pathway? What will be required to get there? And what Jackie and I like to challenge ourselves, our students, our listeners, what do each of us need to do
2: to make this better? That's a really great question. And I think I need to take it from the police to corrections, and then I'll circle back around to the community. So one thing is that the police, like places we've seen with the driving equality law in Pennsylvania, Memphis has adopted that. Other cities, about seven other cities have adopted or some form of it. Uh, even smaller cities like Fayetteville, North Carolina has adopted these things. For instance, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, when you talk about reducing pretextual traffic stops, think about it. If we didn't have these unnecessary stops, Eric Garner, who was killed for basically selling Lucy's, Tyree Nichols, Dante Wright, Fernando Castillo. George Floyd, yes, and then with Rashard Brooks, right? Because we enforce things that really don't have any public safety value, and I think police departments across the nation are taking a more intelligence-led approach. We're to focus on look in Philadelphia. The research showed that one percent of the uh, of individuals in the city are responsible for sixty to seventy percent of the crimes there. So we're taking a more offender-based approach as well, because we take a place-based approach. You still end up over-policing places that have been long over-policing underserved. And so that's one approach that you, that you take with them when it comes to policing. Drawing back some, change how you reward and promote, that's going to change how you recruit. That's going to change in the future who's going to be your leaders and your chiefs, right, and keeping these same mindsets. So it's things that police can take a more uh, intelligence-led approach, pull back on trivial matters, Look, who wouldn't have aspired tags and broken taillights, uh, one broken taillight, if they had the money to do so? And all it does is perpetuate the, the problems and the poverty that they're in. Then you start talking about the courts. The courts have done a better job of individualizing justice. But look, it's, it's unlimited wants, unlimited needs, but definitely limited resources. And whether it's manpower, whether there is capital what what have you, it's limited. And so I think just focusing on the most serious matters and not just... When we make decisions, okay, we're not going to send people to prison because we know in some places like California, they sent them to jails <laughs> In other places where they don't even show up. They're really in prison, but stay prison, but they just house somewhere differently. And so I think, you no know, one thing we need to do better is understand what go- what's going on in our jails. How are people being treated? Is it overcrowded? Are people who go there able to get their medications and things? So we got to take a more humane approach, individualized approach. And we've seen that across many states where they focus again Two-thirds of prisons in the U.S. are there for serious violent crime. It's hard to get in there for drugs again because we're taking a treatment approach uh, moving forward or a, di- a diversionary approach. Uh, then you start talking about bringing it back to the community. And this is going to be hard to say, but, you know, oftentimes I tell people who complain about the police, sign an application. Be the change that you seek. Now, I know that's saying, that saying simple and it sounds like an old head cop with gray hair saying it. I get it. I get it. But that's part of it. We have to take a more active role. And I think, you know, what's happened in our society is that we've taken a back seat. We've depended on the government and depended on others. And I think we all have to understand that we have a role in this. Even if it's just as community members calling the police. But you have to trust the police to do that. Being witnesses, right, having your fellow uh, community members back, that goes a long way to ensuring that the courts can get convictions. But if you don't trust the system, Why would you when you're afraid of retaliation? You see, these things are difficult, but some places have been able to do these things. And ask community members. You know, get involved. You know, the one thing I tell people, oh, no voting, voting this, people want fast answers. How many of us educate ourselves about who we're voting for, for our DAs, for our judges? Either it's an incumbent or we vote along party lines. Right? We need to do a better job of educating ourselves. And this is why, you know, my wife and I, we I are stomping the pavement because we realize that everybody doesn't have access to these journal articles, these scientific journals that you have in the average hour that I'm privileged to be part of, right? And so we have to break down that barrier and worry about why there's so much misinformation. So not only does the community have a role, academia has a role. So another thing that we need to do as a society is, is really fight To fund our criminal justice system, not to widen the net, but help it operate better. You want faster response times for police? You need to find a way to recruit more police. You want college-educated officers? You're going to have to pay them more because there's other industries that they can do and not deal with the fact that they deal with, with this one, right? And some places have actually been getting this done correctly. And the places that have been getting this done correctly, think about Newark. 2021, the Newark police didn't fire a single shot. Now they stopped more people, but they stopped more people because they had more intel right? They got more weapons off the street. And they do this so when it wasn't in an equitable way. But they had a mayor who was really supportive they had the political will. You had a governor who passed a law that said, you cannot include reward structures or stops and, and searches and arrests in your evaluation of your officers. And I think the federal government has a role too. I think the federal government can best provide standards, provide benchmarks and guidelines, but the best thing they can do is finance. that Those programs and those departments that are doing the job that you want to do. We want more data. Half these places don't have the uh, infrastructure, the computing power or the manpower and the the expertise to do the things correctly. And so we have to really think about it holistically. And and, and I really hate to think about defund the police. I hate these political slogans because they get hijacked. And I'm like, who's saying to find the police? Because you talk to people in these communities? They're not saying it. And so we have to also make sure that these community members, we're not giving them voice. Uh, my wife's a qualitative researcher and I love, she said we give them a microphone to amplify their voices. That's who we need to hear from. And so I think a lot of us, you know, even us academics and advocates, we need to get the hell out the way and talk to the people who are actually dealing with these issues. And so that's a little bit of, of, of how it works, but we all have responsibility in this process.
1: After hearing from our sponsors, Dr. Thaddeus Johnson returns with a message to the black community. The dream of becoming an attorney is possible at Monterey College of Law.
0: I am a first-generation law student. I have a lot of people in my life rooting for me, encouraging me to pursue this career. According to the National Bar Association, 5.8% of American practicing lawyers are Hispanic, and 2% of those attorneys are Latinas. So I am pursuing the American dream. Si se puede.
3: To learn more or apply, visit MontereyLaw.edu. Thad, what I wanted to do when you ended that was, and if we could on a podcast, uh, but it would sound bad, is just do a mic drop. Because I think how you wrapped, kind of wrapped up what it means to have holistic reform and how we need to look at what's happening in our communities through a much wider lens than we are and that it's our responsibility to be a part of the solution rather than simply casting blame. As you've noted, there's enough blame to go around and each of us can play a part in helping our communities get to that safer place. So I wanna thank you, not just for coming on to the podcast, but really for all the work that you're doing It is so important, as you noted, to have academia get involved in community reform. And you can't do it without data and evidence to back up the reforms that are needed. And you're shining a light exactly where it needs to be shined. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming here.
2: And and before I close, I think, you know, I want to say something real quickly. You know, I was passing blame around, but I particularly want to talk to the Black community real quickly, if I may. You know, at some point we have to, draw a line in the sand, because no community is an island. And it's difficult to ask a group that's been traumatized, that's been hurt, that's still dealing with things to to step up again. But that's just the way the cookie crumbles, and, and, and that's a bad way to say it. And we have to to deal in reality, you know, the talk that many Black parents have with Black kids, you know, we we're talking to police leaders, and we talked about Black fear and mistrust, and how that Black fear can impact the resistance. You know, officers face more resistance in black communities. If police and, commi- and justice systems are really making an effort to do right and to move forward, we have to be involved. Because if we're not, we're going to have these same issues. And even when we talk to our kids about what's going on, we have to make sure we do it responsibly. We have to be willing to forgive. Maybe not forget, but forgive and move forward. And that's hard. And that may be one of the bigger Bigger obstacles we have to overcome and figure out, but that, that takes that community building. You know, Newark police has trauma-informed policing, where it's simply officers deal with trauma and communities deal with trauma. And communities tell police how their actions increases their trauma, makes it worse, and police are able to do the same. And so, you know, at the end of the day, these big fancy things we got going on, that's great, but it often comes down to communication and finding space for us to be vulnerable with each other. And if we're not doing that, these great ideas won't work.
0: Thad, thank you so much for joining us today. One of the favorite parts for me to do in this podcast is who I get to meet and what I get to learn. And it's been a, a delight meeting you and you have taught us so much. And for educators, that's as important as anything. And we hope we're helping you get this information
2: and this data out to a larger audience. No, absolutely. Uh, just appreciate you allowing me to be myself. You know, we, we talked earlier and you all said, don't pull any punches. And I really appreciate that because, you know, we have to have hard conversations and it starts here. So thank you for you know, allowing me to kind of voice these things and try to shed light from my perspective. It's not the only perspective, but I do feel like it's an effective perspective if we kind of talk and move forward with it. So thank you all so much.
3: Mitch, Once again, it was not just an informative conversation with that, but a really inspiring one for me. I think one of the things that has really come through in almost all of our episodes and is a theme here as well is the idea of local action. And the other piece or theme that comes out is the interconnection. Of everything. You know, we've had episodes on book bans. We've had episodes on the state legislative process. We've had episodes on the way that laws can undermine or impact individual rights. And each of those themes showed up here. You can't attack problems like this racial disparities in our criminal justice system by, as Thad points out, one pressure point, defund the police, or one pressure point, change the DA. It's got to be a community solution that involves not just the mayor and the DA and the criminal justice system and the courts and the police, but the community members themselves. And they all have to get behind a recognition and a belief that collaboration will change the safety in their communities.
0: Jackie, let me expand it one step further as we frequently do on the program. It goes beyond all of those people, although every one of them are a critical part of the solution. But we have to be smarter about it. We have to be willing to look at the sound, listen to the sound bites and looking at the video clips that news media give to us, that do not go to the root cause, that just feed the political narrative of some of these social themes. We need to be willing, we, the members of the community, the lawyers, the leaders, everyday citizens, need to be looking at the underlying issues, poverty, police funding, community policies, leadership, collaboration. All of these things that Thad so well articulates work, that when we all get together, but we can't point the finger, as he warned us, to somebody else to fix it, because the somebody else's can't fix it without the rest of us seeing this as a critical, critical element of our community at large. So I really thank Thad for crystallizing those thoughts and And warning us, don't point fingers, you fix it, police, you fix it, district attorney, you fix it, Mr. Mayor, you fix it, Ms. Congressperson. It's all of us that have to decide that enough is enough. We want this to be a more fair, just, and safe community that each of us live in. And as he shows, the data shows, if we do that, it works.
3: Mitch, agree completely. And I think something that Thad said at the end and that we talked about at some length during the interview is really the idea of the economics of the solution. One, that the budgets that are put out by the state and local and federal level, they have values built in there and that with resources, these problems can be fixed So where are we sending or what kind of resources are we putting through this? Where is it on our values meter in terms of solving these problems? And the second one is the perverse incentive that's built into both the for-profit prison system and, quite honestly, the 13th Amendment, where we have essentially made it constitutional to have slavery in the guise of incarcerated individuals. And that... Piece of the 13th Amendment is not a mistake, and it's part of what has incentivized the mass incarceration in the United States. And I don't think we can ignore that or pretend it's not part of the problem. I want to thank all of you for coming and listening once again, and I want to remind you that Mitch and I are always interested in hearing what's on your mind. You can find us at sidebarmedia.org. We look forward to hearing directly from you.
0: Thank you to our producer and musical muse, who composed and performed all of the music in today's episode, David Eakin. And thank you to our marketing director and social media millennial, Gogo Zoger. Zogar.
3: Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities.
0: For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's
2: calawschools.org.